Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. Good, good. You're out there. That's good. I, it's, uh, I love, always love being here, and um, it's always fun to stand up here and see everybody. So glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 this morning. I'm going to read it, and we'll, we'll jump right in. Um, it's, a, it's a chapter of hope. It really is. And um, truly, this is where I found food recently, and I'm, I just want to bring you there so you can eat as well. All right, if you're there in chapter 4 of Revelation, uh, let's begin. Hear now the written word of God. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was all, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. This is the written word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bring us into the throne room this morning. Bring us there. Give us your view on life. Give us your view on history let us see from your perspective, because, Father, from our perspective, it can be a little too much. And so, Lord, bring us there that we might see your glory and honor and gain perspective and live for you and die to self and to take up our cross and follow you. For what good is it for man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And so, Father, we ask now, give us wisdom to hear and let the truth come forward even through me. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I do indeed love this chapter. In, um, in fact, the, the first words that were in the, the first verse where it says, come up here. You know, the, the, John, who is the author of Revelation, the Apostle John, he hears a voice in heaven that says, it says, come up here. And I like to think of that voice saying, like, hey, why, come up here. I need to show you something. You know, come up here for a minute. You have got to see this. So that's what we're going to do. Now, before we get to that point in, in Revelation 4, we're going to take two stops on the way. The first stop is going to, well, one of the stops 
is going to be in a parable that Jesus tells. Jesus tells us a parable of the seed and the, uh, the sower and the seed. And from that, we're going to glean some of the things that um, I think preoccupy our minds a lot. And uh, we'll see what kind of makes, makes us unfruitful in a world, in this world. Uh, and before we get to that, I want you to take a look at something that's up on the screen. We've got a little thing that I got. I don't know if you can see that or not. That's a laminated card that I have on me. I can go get it for you and show you. But um, it was a, a laminated card that my wife made for us, uh, for me and for our family, probably about se- you know 2007, however long ago that was. There was a book that came out written by Tim Chester called The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness. Great title. It's a great book. He had seven, about six sort of conclusions in the book that were really, really helpful. And so I wrote them out, and my wife had read the book, and so she liked it, so she made a laminated card so that we could have it on us. And I've since then memorized it, and if I had to do it right now, I'd probably panic. It wouldn't be able to do it. I think I can tell you everything that it says up there without looking back there even. But here's the thing. If you look at the very top of it, it has three things. And when I read that, I hear them in the form of a question. You know, in the form of a question saying that, you know, are you overwhelmed, Bill? Um, discouraged? And depressed? And it's not the kind of depression that's clinical or that, you know, that, uh, that's really that difficult form of depression. It's the type of depression where just everything is just starting to bring you down. And those three questions I ask a lot. And, I, and look, I just need to go to a news website and just make one click and read what's going on in the world and in our nation. And I can get really overwhelmed and discouraged and depressed, just like that. But I like what happens next. There's a question that's asked, and it says, what lie are you believing? What lie are you believing? And I saw a bumper sticker. I see a lot of them around, and it says, let me see if I can remember it. It says, um, it says, don't believe everything you think. It's very true. But what lie are you believing, and what's the truth that will set you free? And these six truths that are listed up here, I think there's six. I'm going to look. I'm going to see if I can do this right. But, you know, the first one is that the truth that will set you free is that Jesus is your Savior, so you don't have to prove yourself. Now that will preach, and that's a great topic, but that's not this morning's conclusion. <laughs> Let me keep going. You know, the, the next one says that God is our master, so we don't have to worry about other people's expectations of us. I, mean, I can beat myself up like crazy with that one. And that's a great topic for a sermon, but that's not this morning's sermon. And the next one is that God is our provider, so that we don't have to fear that things will spin out of control. Because he's our provider. Again, great topic for sermon, not this morning. Now, then, it says that God is our refuge, so we don't have to hide behind busyness. And that's sort of that, the topic of the book, right? Sort of we get caught up in busyness, um, and we hide behind things. So we don't have to hide at all. You know, we don't have to take refuge in anything else but God. And then it says, then God is our joy, so we don't have to pursue satisfaction in possessions. Those are all things that could preach really well, but that's not what this morning's about. This morning's is about this last one, that God is our hope. God is our hope, so we don't have to make the most of this life. God is our hope, so we don't have to make the most of this life. Now, let's go to the parable of the seed and the sower, because from that, 
I want us to sort of see ourselves in it. Um, because if you know the parable where Jesus is telling the parable of this, uh, the sower, he has seed and he's scattering the seed. Some seed fall on a path, but uh, birds come really quick and take the seed. Another seed falls on rocky soil. Uh, it takes a little bit of root and sprouts up, but the sun beats down on it and it has no root, so it burns up really quickly. The third one falls among thorns, but the thorns choke it out. And then the last one is the good soil where there's 30, 60, and 100-fold fruit. And then Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. And his disciples go, oh, we hear it, but we don't understand it. And he sort of, I suppose, rolls his eyes and says, if you can't understand this one, how can you understand any of them? But let me explain it. And so in it, he says this. He says, the seed is the word of God, the message of God, the powerful word of God that brings life, right? He says, sometimes the word lands on somebody and Satan comes and steals the word really quick. Now, we know that Satan operates in lies. That's how he steals the word. He lies. He plants lies on our hearts. So we have to, as followers of Christ, even though we would be in the good soil, because that's we, you know, we, we need to see 30, 60, 100 fold, Satan still comes and puts lies on our hearts. And then the second seed lands on some rocky soil, and the sun is tribulation, right, and persecution. And those are the things that just also we can face. We can be uh, words of other people. As followers of Christ, we might want to move away and sort of hide because of the, our culture is changing quickly. But it can steal the fruit of God's word in our lives if we're afraid and we're fearful of persecution or the difficulties of life. We start to question God and, you know, and that can steal the, the fruit. But it's really this middle part. And I told you we had to go on a little bit of an adventure before we get to uh, Revelation 4. But when Jesus talks about the next seed that lands on a particular area, he says it lands among thorns. And when I think of thorns, I always immediately go to chapter 3 of Genesis, where we see that, you know, as sin entered into the world, God is telling Adam and Eve, and he's telling us, too, that everything about life now is uphill. Everything. All of life is uphill. There's no ease and comfort about life that you can count on for any long periods of time. It's all uphill. And so it's like living among thorns. And so work is hard. Relationships are hard. Uh, nations don't like each other. You know, politically we're separated. Everything's just kind of a mess most of the time. And that's how life is. And so as I think about that seed, Jesus says this. He says that it's the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things that distract and preoccupy, steal the power of God's word. And I would say, wow. If I start to look at my life, I say, those are things that I can, yep, the cares of the world. Now think about what that is, the cares of the world. It's the things, I think in a real sort of elementary level, it's the things that the world cares about. The cares of the world could be everything politically that's going on right now. I mean, if you're preoccupied with that, I understand. But it can steal the power of God's word in your life, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. We know what that is. I will be happy when this, my ship, will come in. Now then, I'll be good. But until then, I'm not sure. Right? The deceitfulness of riches. It's this whole notion that, you know, hey, once you get what you get once, then you'll be happy. And, and you know... 
it's very deceitful. And then thirdly, the, the desires for other things. Desires are good, but when they become over-desired, when you're preoccupied with it, it will steal and preoccupy your mind. It will steal the power of God's word in your life. So those are sort of the, sort of the things that come along and can distract us and preoccupy us. Jesus does an amazing job, right? He lays that out in that parable. Now, if I were to say really what's going on, I've come to the conclusion that even as a follower of Christ, one of the, one of the things that, that this could go under the heading, all the things that Jesus lists out in that parable, it's this notion. I don't know if, see if you agree with this or not, but I think what the world tells us and what we end up believing a lot of the times is we've got 70, maybe 85 years to live, and that's it. And what I mean by that's it, there's really not anything beyond this. Now, we know as believers, we go, yeah, I know there is. New heavens, new earth. Be with Jesus. It's far better to die than, you know, it's a gain. Okay, okay. But practically, we live as if we've got to get everything we can. That we've got to, because, because I get really, I hold stuff close. I don't want to let go of money. I don't want to let go of clothes. I don't want to let go of time. I'm almost like i got to figure out how to squeeze as much out of life as I possibly can. And I think that's kind of the lie that we operate on in general. And I think in a, a culture that is generally, has their needs met, generally we kind of get like that. I know I do. And I, boy, ugh, I absolutely know that I do. Um, and so that's a, that is a basic sort of general lie. And so we find, we believe that we have to make the most out of this life. That that's sort of how we operate. We've got to make the most out of this life. And so when I read something that was written by um, this orthopedic surgeon that did a lot of his career over in India where leprosy was sort of prevalent and he spent the first half of his career there and then the second half of his career back in the States. And his name um, is just a quote. I'll read it to you. But uh, Dr. Paul Brand, he wrote this. He said, in the United States... I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Our new American pastime is avoiding any kind of difficulty, suffering at all. It'll take us off the mark. We'll get preoccupied with it. In the power of God's word, it's, we miss these incredible opportunities. So, the basic lie, you've got 85 years if you're lucky, 70 probably, and you better make the most of it. And so we care about what the world cares about. We, just, we pursue riches and, and we desire for other things. It happens so quickly. It happens in my life every second of every day. All right, so here we go. The call is, okay, I get it. But come up here. Let me show you something. You have got to see this. Come up into heaven with me. I'm going to show you something. You've got to see this. Now, it's important as we read Revelation. We've got to know sort of where it fits in the canon of Scripture. Because in the Bible, we've got all kinds of literature. We've got the, the Psalms. It's, a, it's poetry, right? So we have poetic literature in the Bible. We've got historical narratives. We've got prophetic literature, we've got letters, we've got the Gospels, and at the very end, we have Revelation, which is a type of literature. It's called apocalyptic literature. It was a type of literature that um, 
had its heyday from about 400 B.C. to 200 A.D. And so this was written, uh, Revelation was written about 100 A.D.-ish. Um, and so it fits right in there. And so this is apocalyptic literature. And so you have to sort of, know, it's important to know. And what apocalyptic literature does is it borrows symbolism to make a point. And this bigger, broader point that apocalyptic literature does is it claims to provide, in this case, it definitely does, it's God's word, but it provides um, God's perspective on history. It's saying, well, this is how you see it, but let me show you how it really is. That's why when the call in verse 1 says, come up here, man, you've got to see this, we need to go up there and look. We need to see our lives as God sees it. And so that's one of the key features. Now, Chapter 4, Revelation, that's where we are. But in the previous chapters, chapters 2 and 3 in particular, um, Jesus dictates a letters to John that he wants to go to different churches around the Middle East. And um, in each one, he gets a compliment. He complains about something. And I can't imagine God really complaining. But he's saying, look, he's saying, you have a problem here. And I do have a complaint. There it is. But here's a compliment. And uh, you need to do something about it. Well, there was one of the churches, Smyrna, he doesn't give a compliment or a, um, a complaint. He's just very pastoral in his letter to them. Because it turns out that they were struggling with the, just the pressures of life. Many in their church were struggling with poverty. Um, they were receiving slander. They were being bullied. They were, they were fearful. You know, they're fearful of what someone else could do to them. It was weighing on them. Um, and so it was in the form of words as well as, you know, physical persecution. And so they were, you know, just feeling overwhelmed, discouraged, probably depressed. And so Jesus writes them a letter and says these things to encourage them. He says in verse 9 of chapter 2 in Revelation, he says, I know your affliction. The God of the universe says, I know. I know what you're going through. And then he says, but here's the deal. It's only going to be for a time. It's only going to be for a time. You may end up in prison. It's possible, but it'll only be for a time. And I don't know, again, it's sort of open-ended. Is it really just for a short time, or is it it'll all make sense at some point? It won't last forever. And then he says this, though. He says, but keep in mind, you have eternal reward, that your hope is based on who Jesus is. And in that verse, it says he's the first and last who died and came to life again. So he's saying, don't fear death. And he says, there is a crown awaiting you for your faithfulness through this struggle, life among the thorns. There's a a crown waiting for you. There's a crown that is yours. And so that's just all in chapter 2. And then we got chapter 3. And then here we are, chapter 4, finally, right? And so that voice from heaven says, come up here. You've got to see this. I've got to show you this. The first thing that John sees is he sees the throne of God. And there is God on his throne. And the picture is that everything radiates out from that. Because all the descriptions about what's going on with the, you know, you know, flying animals and all kinds of things, you know, that beautiful you know, rainbows and sapphires and all kinds of jewels, um, that they all radiate out from that center, that where God is. That's almost like concentric circles just radiating out. And it's just, it essentially is saying that God is at the very center of everything. Everything centers on God. 
period. When we were raising our kids, I never did this, but I wanted to. And I, maybe I should still do it because I need it. But I wanted to get like a fake um, newspaper with a giant headline that read, Scientists discover world does not revolve around Billy, you know, or one of my kids, or does not revolve around Alec. You know, scientists prove that world does not revolve around mom or dad. Right? Because, I mean, so often we get like that. Everything needs to revolve. Well, this is a picture of the truth. Everything revolves around God. Everything radiates from him. Everything centers on him. Period. That's the picture. That's the voice. Come up. Here's the truth. And this is all important. Um, because one of the things we, we might wonder, well, who is this on the throne? Is it God? How do we know it's God? Well, the imagery certainly points to it's God. Because there's a lot of Old Testament references. of, uh, For instance, like rainbows and precious stones. Because when God was described in the Old Testament... That was used really very often. Like Exodus 24 said that the picture of God was that he had his, his feet were on a pavement of sapphires. The things are so brilliant and so beautiful. It's on beyond description. So the best we can do is it's like jewels. And that's the picture of God in heaven at the very center of everything. And then it says that there were 24 elders, you know, not at a boring session meeting, I don't think. <laughs> but there was 24 elders. And what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we kind of do the math. Because it's sort of this notion that there are 12 tribes from the Old Testament, right? The, you know, And then there's 12 apostles. But the, in apocalyptic literature, it points to the complete assembly of the church. God's people. So where the, the image is, is that where God is, his people are there. He, they're among him. And that's the truth. That's the truth that's to combat the lies that we believe. It's part of it. But there is the church, the complete church. And then it says, oh boy, here we go, the, the, the thunder and the lightning. You know, 2,000 years ago, oh, well, how about just recently? I was... Uh, <laughs> There was a, uh, a viral video of some guy out walking his dog, and there was some, uh, there was some, just some, you know, CCTV footage. Lightning struck, boom, he just fell over. I mean, the guy was just walking his dog. And lightning, just the power of nature, the sounds and that sort of thing. You know, a 2,000-year-old mind, and even now, if you've ever been through a tornado or a hurricane or just, you know, hailstorm, the power is just unbelievable. So the imagery for us is that all power resides with God. All power, period, is God's. And then it says that there were seven spirits. You know, we would say, oh, I thought there was just one. Well, in the apocalyptic literature, it's this notion that the complete presence of God was there. The complete presence of God. And then the still sea. I love this imagery because, you know, again, 2,000 years ago, probably one of the most dangerous thing you could do was travel by boat across a sea. Because, you know, in a drop of a hat, the seas could just get, you know, unbelievably chaotic and you could be dead just like that. Well, now that might be your perspective, but from God's perspective, everything is calm. He is the one who calms everything. There's, there's nothing out of his control. Nothing. Even the sea. Even the sea is calm with God. 
Um, then the living creatures. Now this one is actually really, we can really, should be able to relate to this one uh, really well. Lion, ox, face of a man, eagle. Um, this is, where this comes from is if you just think about it, like even in America, the, the, the symbol for America is the eagle, right? And, and by the way, that's not what this is referring to. So people like to really figure out, where's America in this? And I, have, I have no idea, but I know it's not this. Um, but usually, nations have some sort of symbol, like we think Russia, bear, right? You know, America, eagle. But that's how those in power would keep you in check. They would put symbols around all over the place, on coins, statues, everywhere, to remind you who's in charge. And if you get out of line, who's going to come down on you? Hard. And so in the minds of even like the, the, you know, the Roman church, you know, the people that were under, well, the church at the time of Roman's rule, of Rome's rule, it was a fearful time. You know, you, you didn't know when the, you were going to be persecuted by the state because they held all the power. But what's crazy and amazing about it, if you look at this in Revelation 4, what are all those propaganda symbols doing? They're worshiping God. And it's telling us that there is no power on earth that is not under God's power. None. You know, we live in a unique time in America, right? It's crazy what's going on. But God is, to him, the sea is still. Everybody involved in that is under his rule. And if we're preoccupied with it, we need to be preoccupied with God. And so, so they proclaim the power of the heavenly king, not the earthly king. That's what all of those sort of animals are doing. It means everything's under his rule. Everything. And they even say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's straight out of Isaiah, right? And so the church at that time, you know, they were constantly made aware that they weren't in power, that the state was, you know, Caesar was, Rome was. But um, they were reminded that who lives forever, and it's Jesus they were reminded who really was worthy. And I love the song selections this morning. Um, I would feel so sorry for patience, by the way. Me on the front row. I know you're hearing notes you never thought existed. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry if you hear me sing. Uh, um, but I can't help it. Uh, but it said, you know, worthy are you, Lord and God. That's what you said to Caesar. If he came triumphantly from a, you know, marching into your town, that's what you would say to him. And so, no. Only God is worthy. And so it's taking our minds and our eyes and our hearts off of the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, taking us out of that realm where we think that this is all there is. You know, that, um, that we have to make the most of this life. And putting it, our thoughts, our hopes, completely on Jesus to pull us out of our uh, discouragement, depression, and feelings of being overwhelmed. And so we do get to that place, though, I often, I know I do, when we wonder, where is God? You know, where are you? I can't, you know, what are you up to? Where is he? And what John's vision does is it reminds us that we're not at the center of all things. Our hopes are not centered on anything else but God himself. And we're, um, I mean, I found this great, very uh, popular level commentary 
on Revelation that I just commend to you. It's written by Tim Chester. Um, I can't think of exactly what it's called, but I know it's uh, Revelation is in the name. But he says this, and I found it really helpful, so I'm going to quote it directly. One of the things that we conclude by reading Revelation 4 um, is this. This is God's world, not mine. At stake is God's glory, not mine. Everything exists to glorify God. The vision illustrates this in that God doesn't exist to serve me or follow my agenda. For anyone who is enduring suffering, this perspective is both humbling and liberating. You are not in control of your life. God is. That, boy, that is central to what gets me in trouble so often, where I get discouraged, depressed, overwhelmed. And so, we have to conclude, too, that God has the right to order our circumstances as he sees fit. And in fact, we have no rights before God. We have to relinquish everything before him. Now, I want to close with a couple of things here, very briefly, because I am almost done. What is this? Oh. I love it. Okay. Um, Take a look, if you have your Bibles open in Revelation, look at um, verse 5 of chapter 4. It says that there were seven torches there. And those seven torches take us back to chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 20, where we see the lampstand. There were seven lamps. And so, a lot of times in apocalyptic literature, there are connections and correspondence. Like you just, all these things tie together. And so they say the same thing sort of differently. So we're supposed to, in our minds, connect these seven torches back to chapter one, where there are seven lamps. And those lamps are clearly stated there that they represent the church. They represent churches, actual churches, but they represent the church of Christ, us, the body of Christ. So here's the thing. This, when these seven torches are described, they're right there at the throne of God. Right there on that first ring, that that first circle of people and things and, you know, in in heaven. And so the beloved bride of Jesus is always in front of him in his sight. You and I are always in front of him within his sight, always. We're near to him and dear to him. That's you and me. Never out of his sight, ever. No matter the circumstance. No matter the trouble. In fact, Hebrews 12, um, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, the author of Hebrews says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we're to consider Jesus. Who is at the center of his heart? The people that he has right near him. It's you and me. We were the joy set before him. So he endured the cross, despising its shame. And now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He's there. That's what we see in heaven that's, he loves us. We're never out of his sight. See, the lie is that you have to make the most of this life because this is all that there is. But Jesus says he's not at the center of every circumstance in your life. 
You're never far from me. I will never let you out of my sight. I will never let you out of my hand, ever. But the world, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of the things say, you must make the most out of this life. Because this is all there is. But the truth is, you don't have to make the most of this life. Why? Because God is your hope. He is at the center of everything. Come up here, i got to show you something, and you need to see this. What do we see? He's at the center of everything. And we're right there with him, never out of his sight. He's at the center of all things, making all things new. In fact, if you jump to Revelation 21, what do we learn? He wipes away all tears. New heavens, new earth will be so glorious. It will, be, it will stagger our imaginations forever. Because now the loud voice in Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling places of, of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And see, see, God is our hope, so we don't have to make the most of this life. God is our hope, so we are rich beyond all measure. God is our hope, though there would be cares of the world. We don't have a care in the world. Amazing. Um, I, I try to use this illustration minimally, because I probably have done it here. But this just happened yesterday, so I want to use it. Uh, many of you in this room know that our oldest son, Billy, uh, is severely autistic. 30 years ago, he would be labeled mentally retarded. Okay, nowadays, autis- autistic is you're just weird an engineer at NASA. So, um, but he's severely autistic. And um, he's, you know, his whole life, and I, I'm not kidding, his whole life, when, when I put him to bed, I, I said the same prayer, and I said the same thing at the very end of it. And I, I told him, I said, this isn't all there is. You'll see. And so um, you know, he, we had him in our home, and at the age of 17, he got to the place where we couldn't keep him in the home anymore. He became you know, violent, it was difficult, and some of you in the room know what we went through. And so he went away to a, a group home, and he was away for you know long periods of time. And we saw him sporadically, and you know every two weeks or something. And and I wasn't able to pray with him like I would every night, obviously. Um, but there was a point where um, when he left that situation, now he lives here in Huntsville. We see him every weekend. We see him a lot during the week. Um, but there was a point where I just was wondering if he remembered what I told him. And I said, I said, Billy, I said, do you remember what Daddy always told you? And to my absolute surprise, and amazing, he said, this isn't all there is. And then I paused, and I thought, oh. And he finished it off, and he said, you'll see. We don't have to make the most of this life. There's a new heavens, new earth coming. There are sacrifices that God calls us to make. There are circumstances we're in. We don't have to make the most of this life. Come up and look at what God's doing. The cares of the world, the truth is, we have no, no cares in the world. Not a care in the world. Deceitfulness of riches, we are wealthy beyond all imagination. Desires for other, other things, we have it all. So, and... We're never out of his sight, ever. This isn't all there is. You don't have to make the most of it. You'll see. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, uh, truly thank you for the difficulties. I don't want many more, but Lord, thank you that the truth is that we're never out of your sight. The truth is we're not the center of all things. You are, and you're holding it all together perfectly. The chaotic world we live in from your vantage point, it's still. It's, it's, and it will, will be still forever. There'll be a new heavens, new earth. All things are being made new and will be new forever. We will miss out on nothing in this life. There's no circumstance that you call us to that you're surprised by. Lord, thank you that we have this truth, that we can, more times than you know, we, as often as we can, come up there and look and see things from your perspective and be reminded. If it's going to take a fake headline for us to <laughs> framed in our rooms that we're not the center of all things, so be it. But Lord, thank you that you're our hope, and so we don't have to make the most of this life. In Christ's name, amen.